Welcome to another episode of the Modern Facilities Management Podcast, brought to you by Flowpath. I'm your host, Griffin Hamilton. This is the show where I interview industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights into modern day facilities management. From hospitality to commercial real estate and everything in between, we'll learn what it really takes to succeed as a facilities manager. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Facilities Management Podcast. Today's guest is coming live from Denver, Colorado. That is Dean Stanberry. Dean, how you doing? Very good. It's a it's good for a Monday. You know, they say Monday's a lousy way to spend one seventh of your life, but it's not too bad today. <laughs> Love that. Uh, well, Dean, before we jump into uh, what we're going to be discussing in depth here today about software implementations and that purchasing process. Uh, why don't you tell the audience who you are and how you got into facilities and, and really what you've done throughout your career? Okay, well, um, I've actually had two careers. I really started out in IT and I spent uh, about 20 years in um, uh, working for one of the large telecom companies uh, running data centers and working in their advanced technologies division. And towards the end of that, I was working for the CIO, Chief Information Officer, um, and one day the real estate uh, group came around to all the business unit leaders and said, we're going to give you back responsibility for the space that your department occupies. And so you need to get somebody to run that. And so he kind of looked over at me and goes, you used to run data centers. That's kind of like facilities here. And so that was my uh, accidental profession story of uh, that's how I First got into uh, full-time facility management. I, I asked him, I said, well, what do we got? And he goes, I don't know, go ask the real estate guys. And uh, come to find out in that moment, I inherited 5 million square feet of administrative space, a million and a half square feet of data centers, and a bunch of people spread across 14 states. Uh, Easy first facilities so, gig, huh? <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, I knew critical infrastructure, you know, the, the data center side of it, but I'd not really managed administrative space. and. So I decided that I needed to uh, learn a little bit more about that. And that's where I came across the International Facility Management Association, or IFMA. Uh, when I joined IFMA, I started you know, learning a little bit more, taking some of the classes, getting some certifications. And one day somebody asked me if I wanted to join a committee uh, in, with a local chapter. And I raised my hand and said yes. And that started me down a path of... Uh, um, I chaired some committees. I was chapter president of the Denver chapter. I've been on the IFMA Foundation Board of Trustees. I am now the second vice chair of IFMA's Global Board of Directors. So on my way to being chairman of the board. Um, and I chair IFMA's um, Government Affairs Committee. And I've also been very involved in our sustainability initiatives. So, um, you know, chaired the Environmental Stewardship Community and have done a lot of um, writing around uh, you know, climate change and the impact on facility management. So that kind of brings you up to date. Uh, technically, I retired from a paycheck last year, but uh, part of that was because when you're 
in the chairman's role as I'm moving into, um, it's kind of a full-time job and I really didn't want two full-time yep. jobs anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it seems like you just from raise your hand once, you work away and, and now you're quite involved to say the least and just about everything surrounding uh, IFMA. So uh, incredible story there. Um, and I guess with that, you mentioned that uh, your next year taking over, um, when does that start? Well, it'll be uh, actually July of 2023. Uh, so in this July, I'll become first vice chair, and that's mid-year is when all of the turnover happens. So uh, next year, July of 2023, I will become chairman of the board, and that's also in uh, 2023 in September, we will have IFMA's World Workplace Conference in Denver. So uh, I get to be chairman of the board in my home city when we have our, our you know premier rural workplace conference here in Denver so that'll be that'll be unique it's not unusual though because we've had at least one other chairman who was chairman of the board when they had world workplace in his city and that was Philadelphia very cool how long and just curious so in 2023 how long will that have made your involvement uh, with IFMA well, I joined in the last century, if that tells you anything. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it was 1999 when I got involved, so it was close. But, uh, you know, I'll be about 24 years into it, I guess. Got it. Almost 25 years of IFMA. That's incredible. Uh, well, I, like I've said, I appreciate the, the context there. And so uh, what we're really going to be diving into is, like I mentioned earlier, um, purchasing different software and the process of implementing software. And so you mentioned uh, starting out in your career, you were more IT focused. And I imagine that's had a huge impact on your purge, the purchasing process you've been involved with and just having that different perspective. Yeah, it has. Um, so when you look at systems... Um, one of the, the downsides, I think, in facility management is that it's been more of a bricks and mortar profession. And only recently, and I mean, you know, within the last five to 10 years, have we seen really that transition to a digital uh, facilities environment. Um, so really, commercial real estate is the last industry to go digital, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's kind of taken everybody by surprise. And people that have been in the profession for a while really don't have a, a strong technical underpinning uh, of their skills and knowledge. It's not been necessary until now. So there's a lot of learning you know, to be done to kind of bring people up to a baseline level of skills and knowledge. Because um, we're throwing some pretty sophisticated and advanced tools at them these days in terms of IOT and sensors and fault detection and diagnostics and all of the interactions with other systems. So there's a lot to be um, a lot to be learned there. And certainly, if you want to take advantage of what these systems can do for you in terms of data analytics, how do you take raw data and turn it into information and then turn that information into insight? Um, and so that. Um, that's also part of my mission is how do we bring up an entire industry, bring, you know, raise the bar in terms of that knowledge level. Yeah. And with, I guess, looking at the entire purchasing process and it could be overwhelming. And to your point, there's a lot of folks in the industry that just haven't either made the purchase or even used the technology before. So it could be overwhelming and almost to the point where you just don't want to embrace the capabilities of these different tools coming out. 
so what what have you found to be best practices to start out the process? So um, as you're doing the evaluation, because it can, like I said, it can be overwhelming looking at all the different tools available. Um, where do you begin and, and what are some best practices there? Well, this really starts at the organizational level. So any business function, doesn't matter, facilities, anything, must start with the process that that function will follow to accomplish its objectives. So once you have defined that process, then you determine, you know, do you have the right people in terms of skills and knowledge to execute the process? And then lastly, you need to implement tools that will support the process and the people. Now, many organizations attack this in exactly the wrong order. They start, you know, with a shiny new object, convinced that this tool is going to solve their organization problems. But um, often what it means is you have a tool and now you're trying to force fit your process around the tool instead of the other way around. And, and that's where uh, a lot of people get sideways right off the bat. Um, so understanding do you have the right process and do you have the right people, then worry about getting a tool that, that supports them. Now, assuming that you have your process and your people sorted out, the next step would be really to draft a set of functional requirements to drive your tool evaluation. So as you're looking at tools, you know what, what are you looking at? How are you checking the boxes to see whether or not this meets your needs? Uh, this can be an issue for facility organizations because many of them really don't have um, a business analyst uh, skill set to develop those functional requirements. So most large corporations will have general business analyst positions to support the effort. And I kind of foresee that in facilities, uh, there's a need for a new position, just call it a facilities analyst for lack of a better term, uh, who needs to know about the facility management function and has knowledge of related business functions that, um, that they can actually fulfill this functional requirements role in helping define what those are. And in any event, the functional requirements really uh, attempt to define what you will need the, to the tool to do in terms of features, scope, scale, and interoperability. So when drafting the requirements, you really look at what the ultimate organizational objectives are. The tool may, in fact, probably should be implemented in phases because you're not going to go from zero to, you know, this uh, full-featured, you know, interoperable set of capabilities in one giant step. Um, that that's a recipe for disaster too. Um, so, you know, what you do is keep in mind that, you know, very few tools operate in an isolated silo today. They also, they talk to other tools. You'll need to interoperate with finance and HR and fault detection systems, building automation systems, you know, pick your other favorites that, that somehow come into play. Uh, but chances are they're gonna need to talk to other things. So part of those functional requirements is understanding what those needs are. And it's not just, uh, you know, the what does the tool need to do? I need to track my assets. I need to know about my locations. I need to do work orders and maintenance scheduling. Um, it, it's all of the above, you know, but, but what, what, what else does it need to do? Does it need to talk to the finance system? Are you tracking your maintenance cost and are you talking back and forth? What about people? Are you, do you, do you need to know what who your occupants are in your buildings you know you get that typically out of an hr system 
um, you know, all of those kinds of things. Working with procurement, are you using uh, procurement systems to acquire, um, you know, spare parts, you know, supplies, those kinds of things. Can you automate those processes? So uh, that's what your functional requirements are intended to do is lay out what are all of your aspirational needs of the tool. And then you can figure out, well, what are, where do I need to start? You know, what are, the, what are the two or three key functions that I want to start off with and then build on it from there over time? Yeah, and I think that's a, a great point to make where you can't just, you know, with one button automate your entire processes. It is going to be a very uh, slow methodical process to having a tool and using it to its fullest capabilities there. And uh, we like to use the you know, crawl, walk, run mentality where you have to start somewhere, but you can't be coming out of the womb just sprinting, right? Um, and so you have to be very intentional with each and every step along the way. Yeah, you, you got to remember you're still running the business as you're going through these. And um, we use the analogy changing the wing on the 747 in flight, right? Um, how do you do that? Because you still have to perform your maintenance every day. You still have to um, you know, keep track of all those things. You still have construction and projects going on, all those things. So how do you do that when you're in the middle of trying to maybe either install or switch out a tool? Um, so there's a bubble in there of, of resource requirements. So that's, that's part of your implementation planning. And I think that's really where you wanted to go next was what's the importance of implementation planning, right? Um, so implementing a new tool covers kind of a wide range of possible scenarios. You know, uh, for example, you may be operating two tools in parallel for some period of time until you can transition fully over to a new tool or you may be implementing it from the ground up and all you're doing is taking data that you've only had in spreadsheets and now putting it into the tool. Um, and either any of those scenarios can work, but it really takes careful planning and preparation of that workforce. Um, you know, what do you have going on? And, and, and these are not like 30 day projects. <laughs> More like 18 to 24 months if you, mm -hmm. if you do it. Um, when you think about from the start to the actual have it stood up and running and you're now you know, functioning on it. Uh, because there's a lot of things that you, you need to look at. So there are several elements. The, the first one that I would um, advise people to look at is what standards will you have? So before implementing anything, you've got to establish your data and procedural standards that you will enforce within the tool, right? That goes back to the first discussion of, do you have a process that you're operating from? Now you need to reflect that into your tools. And tools, th there's no real magic here. They're, they're a container. <laughs> They're just a, they're a tin can that you're dumping all of your data in, and you need to do it in a consistent, concise way if you expect to get any business intelligence out of that data. Mm -hmm. uh, and some people try to put you know, too much on the tool as if it, there's some magic about it. I mean, they can give you a lot of good intelligence, um, but what, what many will not tell you is, is all of the work that goes into setting that up. You gotta set it up. Um, 
So what data items must you track, for example, in an asset record? And, and what are the list of assets you want to type, uh, track? You know, are you tracking carpet and flooring? Maybe not. Do you track the paint color on the walls? Probably not. Uh, do you track light fixtures? Good idea in this day of energy efficiency. Do you track individual electrical outlets? Probably not. There's no real business benefit to that. So you have to kind of figure out what is the level of detail that you're going to be tracking, and that should be documented. Mm -hmm. What a concept. Actually, write it down. <laughs> um, you know, what is your naming convention for your location record? So that when I'm looking at a set of records, you know, is, does it make any sense? Can I, can I look at it and see a logical hierarchy to it? You know, buildings, floors, rooms, spaces within rooms, those kinds of things. Um, and what are your work order information requirements? You know, are you going to, what do you want to know about work orders? You know, I want to know who did the work. Um, I want to know, you know, what, you know, I want some notes. How was it completed? Uh, I want to know what assets were involved. If you, if you don't track what asset you were working on, how do you know what that history is on that asset then? So uh, there's a lot of things that people tend to overlook when it gets to the work order level. Um, even down to, well, how much labor time did you put in on it? How many, how, what materials did you use? What was the cost of your, your parts and you know, spare parts or third-party services that you had to bring in? Um, and you look uh, and you're doing like, when do you do an asset condition assessment and how will that be tracked? You know, quite often that's part of your annual preventive maintenance schedules. You know, I'm going to go work on this particular air handling unit and I need to do a condition assessment on it so that I can track where is it in its life cycle. Is it doing better or worse than it should be at this point in its life? Mm -hmm. So all of those things are part of those standards. Um, and those should be really finalized before you touch any of your data or start any data collection activities. Because otherwise you're going to find yourself going out and you, you come back and you say, oh, I missed some stuff. I got to go back out again. Nobody, it never happens. One of my favorite sayings is always, we didn't have time to do it right, but we always find time to do it over. <laughs> and that's what you find in a lot of cases. Um, you know, somebody rushes through an implementation, they didn't do it right, and now you have to spend more money and time and effort to go back and do it again. And nobody likes that scenario and nobody wants to admit it was their fault. Yep. <laughs> um, and another example is, you know, thinking about what data do you store about your assets? There's obvious things like the manufacturer and the model and the serial number, but what about installation date and the expected life in years? That's how you know how long, what your you know, life cycle dates are on those assets. What about warranty information? So if you're getting work order on a, you know, something broke, is it still under warranty? Should you be calling the installation company to come out and fix it instead of violating your warranty? Uh, what about asset criticality? You know, do, is this asset, you know, mission critical to your business? You know, if this goes down, does it shut your business down? Um, and specifications, you know, things like motor sizes, amperages, volumes, voltages, uh, fuel tank capacities, things like that. Those are all pieces of information that when you're, you have a maintenance technician out in the field and if they've got to try to figure out, do we have this part available or I've got to go order something, 
that's information they need in order to you know make those decisions and make things happen so you know it's stuff that you got to do kind of right away uh, yeah and what's a quick note on that because that is something where i mean you just listed out a handful of different items that you are data points that you could be collecting and reporting on eventually uh, but it's important to note that each and every organization is going to be different on what is important to them but it is vital to have that understanding of what you're going to be using that data for and that dictating what you're going to be collecting in real time and staying true to that and making sure as you mentioned earlier having that standardized across the business right well and most people you know there, there are several roles that are involved in these tools and the guys that do the maintenance in the fields will often say well this doesn't help me at all and I'm going well it's not really about you this is about how we're using that data later uh, to be able to do an annual budget plan that says how many assets do I have that are at end of life and that I need to replace within the next budget cycle um, you know the that's where you get some of that data um, even you know now as we're getting more and more concerned about energy efficiency uh, climate change all of all of those uh, types of things understanding you know what pieces of equipment do we have that are not the most energy efficient and that we should be looking at changing out do we accelerate the replacement of that that equipment and what's the the business benefit to that um, you know doing some work for the government you know I, I use the example I said what if you were able to look across the entire portfolio and say I've got 2700 trained rooftop units that are going to be reaching end of life in the next 18 to 24 months you know being able to go to train and say I've got all this equipment that's reaching end of life let's make a deal mm -hmm. you know it, it, it that goes back to your purchasing you know you you have good facts and data you know for a fact that it's going to be reaching end of life is it all 2700 probably not but you know you can go in and say this is the numbers I'm working with. Um, you know, let's talk about uh, availability. Let's talk about what sort of models we're going to replace them with. You know, so that you're doing it in a planned, not a reactive fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it just it enables you to make these decisions and not on that gut feeling, but having clean and just pure data is something that any executive is going to come to you and say this is you know one much appreciated but two required for me as an executive to do my job and for the business and the health of the business yep so yeah. you, you mentioned earlier the technician right and their vantage point on different tools that they're using and so beyond the choosing and the processes that you're the data that you're looking to collect it goes into implementation and training as well and having that being user-based as well. What have you seen to be successful from a training and onboarding perspective yeah. with different stakeholders? Well, before we go there, we didn't touch on the data migration um, piece and that's... Uh, oh, I'm jumping ahead. I'm getting antsy over here. You're, 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 <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, you're moving ahead. Well, let's talk about that because that's actually, uh, in my mind, one of the most critical components. Uh, it's, it's not only the most critical element of the process, it's perhaps the most lengthy and time-consuming. So primarily this involves looking at your asset and location data, but you know people data is involved 
But in my experience, I've never found an organization where their existing asset data was in good condition. Um, you got to plan to perform, you know, field verification of your asset data to ensure that the data you're putting into the new tool is complete and accurate. Uh, so, you know, your first attempt would be to understand how complete your current asset data is and what level of impairment do you have. You know, what items are missing? Like maybe you don't have installation dates. Maybe you don't have the specifications. Um, in the most recent project I worked on, they didn't have make, model, or serial number. They just had that it was a pump. You know, um, pretty pretty vague. Yeah. So, you know, you should attempt to understand that. Then this will help scope out the data collection uh, effort that's required. If you plan on using mobile devices, it's a good idea to put barcodes and QR codes. So that's a good time to go out and do that as well because most modern tools are going to take advantage of the digital codes and really improve the productivity of your field operations. So, you know, this is one of those planning and upfront activities that is, um, it's expensive, but it pays such dividends down the road because if you start off with bad data, you're, you're, do, you're producing bad reports and you're giving your executives bad advice. So, you know, think about that. You know, you can't produce good reports with bad data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that could be the, like you said, it's a very time-consuming action item up front. Uh, but it is something that you can't really skip over as I tried to. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the importance of that clean data going in and just starting out with that, that foundation is uh, something to not take lightly by any means. Yeah. And I mean, you can try it. You can do it yourself if you think you've got the right people to go out and do that. There are companies that you can bring in. There's lots of options. Um, but the, the, the key point is that you cannot shortchange it or shortcut it. Um, if you try to do, uh, you know, just the, the quick and dirty job, you're going to be very disappointed in your ultimate results. And so you're investing a lot of time and effort in, in putting in a tool, often which doesn't ever get changed out. You know, it's very difficult to move off of one platform to another. There's got to be a really compelling reason to do that because if you're a CFO, you're going to your CFO and saying, I want to change out to this new tool. And they're going to go, oh, okay, what's the benefit? Oh, you're giving me the same thing that it does. the current tool does, it's just new? No. <laughs> you know, the answer is no, I'm not going to give you any money for that. Right. Yeah, and I guess with that, um, going into that difficulty and that transition, right? I mean, you mentioned that there are vendors out there that you could certainly rely on, but uh, that is something that you have to take the initiative there on what you do want into the system, put into the system, uh, because it's it's difficult to just task that on someone else, right? Um, but making sure that you have that clean data in from the get-go is imperative. Well, and that goes back to what I said that, you know, facility management as a profession um doesn't necessarily have a strong technology background. They, they, they don't necessarily understand enterprise level systems and what it takes to uh, put them in place. And so, you know, bringing the IT organization into the, the conversation along with procurement and everybody else, 
uh, that helps. But but don't depend too much on, you know, IT is not the one that's going to make your tool successful. They just make sure that it gets installed and that the right security protocols are in place. But they don't understand facility management. They're not going to be able to produce reports that tell you what you need to know for your portion of the business. And many people are under a misconception that that's a quote IT's job, and it's really not. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, dispel that myth right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, real quick, going back into um, the, the point I was making earlier as far as the training onboarding, because yes. I, I did want to get your insight in, into that, because that is something else that you can't just do a uniform training across the board, because there are different stakeholders that are using different, you know, the tools in different manners. So walk through what that in an ideal world looks like. Yeah, you know, training is something that uh, you will always see in an implementation plan, but it's often shortchanged at the end of the project. Um, and in the crunch to finish getting the tool implemented and move on, training gets cut short and generally incomplete. So what you end up with is you got a great new tool, no shiny tool, and nobody knows how to drive. <laughs> right. You know. Um, so you're left with an organization that's really unable to even use the basic feature of the tool, no less reaping the true business intelligence benefits out of it. Um, so you know, training needs to be um, sort of like put a shell around it and say, you know, this is a must-do. We we must do this in order to get those benefits out of it. And training really needs to be role-based. So each role within the organization is trained in the features and the level appropriate for their job. You know, they don't need to know everything about the tool. Maintenance technicians have a very different set of needs than a facility manager or a systems administrator. So we got to remember too that no software system maintains itself. You need knowledgeable administrators to ensure that that system and its data are kept up to date. Audits must be performed to ensure that the ongoing completeness and accuracy of information being fed into the system from all of the organizational sources. Because as you probably well know, data really comes from a, a variety of places. You know, it, it originates from a variety of places. You know, new construction is happening. Where does that new asset and location data come from? And how does it get into the system? You know, the guys in the field doing maintenance, they have to change out a motor, okay? Who knows how to retire or, or decommission the old asset and put the new asset in? Make sure that all of that asset information has been collected and put into that asset record. Um, you know, the uh, same things like people. People come and go. How do you make sure that, you know, those people records are being updated so that now you have the most current technician data? Uh, with that technician, you have their assigned craft so that you know that this is an HVAC technician at this labor rate. So when you assign them work that their hour, you know, their hours now are being calculated so that you get the appropriate labor cost for for that person. So all of those things um, you know play into those into that training. Who's doing that? Um, you know, so someone from the facilities organization also needs to own this. You know, it's got to have that organizational responsibility. And like I said before, it's not IT. Someone within the facility organization needs to own that responsibility. Um, 
we talk about it in terms of data governance, but this is another piece of it. The it's it's that training that also ensures that your data governance or data compliance um, requirements are being met. Because if you don't train somebody on how to put records into the system, uh, we all know where that goes. You know, tools don't make errors; humans make errors. Yep. And so when everybody complains about the tool isn't working, tool's working just fine. It's the human errors that caused all the problems. Every time. Never seen, you know, occasionally maybe something will go wrong when a system upgrade goes. But, you know, those are easily fixed. It's the human errors that cause the long-lasting problems. Yeah, and you mentioned the onboarding and the training process. I would be curious... Because with technology evolving so quickly, that's something where it's not just, all right, you're good, it's been a month and you've been quote unquote trained. What does the ongoing training look like with these really technical tools that are, are coming out? Well, training is something that's evolving, I think, in the industry. Um, you know, more and more we see more video-based training, you know, trying to do uh, shorter you know, it, like I need to learn this particular task and it's a three minute video. So you may go through a longer uh, training where you kind of learn the basics of the tool, the navigation. How do I get around? Where do I find things? Um, and, and more and more, too, it's, it's also incorporating a lot of that self-help within the tool. So when I get to a function that maybe I haven't done before or I learned six months ago and I forgot what I'm supposed to be doing, is there any embedded help in there that tells me, here's, here's the steps you follow, here's the data standard that you must comply with, and incorporating that stuff into the tool. So it's really a combination of um, you know, the, the initial basic training, um, and then as people move along and learn more about it, um, you know, what, what else do they need to know? And so it's, it's incremental learning as they go along. And also that those, those reminders, how do I remember something that I didn't, haven't done for six months because I haven't needed to, but now I need to and I want to, and I don't quite remember what I'm supposed to do next. Where do I find that? So in any event, the, um, uh, you know, the, there's lots of new ways of training. And, and part of that is, you know, looking at the organization. How many different roles do you have to train on? Uh, who needs to know what and when do they need to know it? Um, you know, a facility manager, you know, may need to know how to navigate the, the tool initially. You know, what work orders are out there. Um, they may not be need to worry about reporting for six months down the road till you've got enough data in there to actually do some reporting on. <laughs> you know, so again, do you bake that into the initial training or do you wait until there's a, a point in time when now they need to know about it because they actually have some, some needs to start doing some reporting, some trending analysis and those kinds of things. And at the end of the day, you know, you still these are these are containers with a lot of raw data. So, do the what individuals in the organization need to understand data analytics, being able to take raw data and do some of their own analysis on it, taking it outside of the tool, and looking for those insights, uh, because the tool doesn't not every, not any tool that I've ever seen 
does that all for you. You know, you, you have to be able to do some, some self-service. You have to say, okay, give me the raw data. Now let me go in and start looking through it and uh, looking for those anomalies or those, those aha moments uh, that, you know, we can start to take some action on. Um, and again, a lot of people believe that somehow software magically does that. Um, you, can, you can build functions into a piece of software to do just about anything as long as the data is there. Uh, but for the most part, it's going to provide you with some of the basics. You know, it's going to tell you, well, how many work orders did I do last month? How many of them met their service level agreement dates? Those are all really basic things. You know, but now if you want to say, okay, well, I got a pretty high um, rate of missing service level agreements. Well, who missed them? Now you got to start digging in to say, who was the one that missed them? And is it the same person or is it everybody? You know, mm -hmm. that's where the the analytics part comes in. And somebody has to own that. Somebody has to take the initiative to go through and do those kind of things. The tool isn't going to pick that out for you and say, yeah, here's all your problems. Go go fix your organizational <laughs> problems. It just, there is no, there's no magic. When I worked in IT, we used to, uh, have a joke that said we had a, a parameter called RPM, which was read programmer's mind. <laughs> Doesn't exist. It was a joke. That's great. Yeah, unfortunately, that doesn't exist just yet. But uh, you know, one of these days, maybe we'll uh, we'll see something that can come out and just solve all of our problems just with a single click. Oh yeah, artificial <laughs> intelligence is going to fix all of our problems, right? <laughs> exactly. Overnight too. <laughs> All right, Dean, so moving on from the training after you've really implemented uh, uh, any sort of software here, software solution, tell me a little bit more about the impact of where, where a facilities management organization is just from a maturity level. Yeah, this is, um, it's an interesting topic. It really relates to organizational culture and change management. Uh, but for the purposes of this discussion, we'll focus on maintenance maturity. Uh, so most organizations look at new tools in the hopes of improving their operations and maintenance performance. But however, the tool only reflects the organization's policies, strategies, standards, and processes. So what do we mean when, by maintenance maturity? And, you know, there, um, there are several levels that you can look at, uh, but it's actually fairly easy to determine where you are as an organization. And so I'll kind of run through them from lowest to most uh, complete. So the first level is really run to fail. Um, you know, some organizations really don't have a formal strategy or a defined maintenance practices. So in most cases, they practice a run to fail strategy where things are just simply repaired or replaced when they break. And it's a strategy, not a good one, but it's a strategy. Um, you know, when you get into the more formal, the first place you hit is preventive maintenance. This is the most basic defined strategy where maintenance is really performed based on manufacturer's recommended schedule. It's not a bad strategy, but in some cases you may be spending more time and money on maintenance that really doesn't necessarily need to be performed. Just because you're doing it by rote, you know, it's uh, Pavlov's dog, you know, the bell rang and I went and changed the filter. Um, then from there, you move into predictive maintenance. So predictive is really sort of adding a predictive element on top of your preventive maintenance capabilities. 
you move to a strategy where um, it's more of a proactive mode. You're performing tasks like vibration analysis or oil analysis that can provide some early warning for critical infrastructure that may be in decline. Um, from there, you can move into condition-based maintenance. This is a more advanced form of a maintenance strategy where you're using more telemetry uh, to detect the need for maintenance or service. For example, you know, a fuel tank monitor can tell you that a fuel level has dropped below the threshold where you want that, that to be in that tank. And a well-configured system can automatically generate a request to the fuel supplier to come and refill the tank. Um, and there's many other options available. When you start coupling it with a fault detection and diagnostics tool, um, now you really start getting some of those benefits of, of um, looking at conditions and uh, you know, sending or dis dispatching somebody out when you detect something that um, starts moving outside of its defined parameters. This also gets into what's now called um, um, you know, monitor-based commissioning. So when you detect a piece of equipment is, is, is starting to, to drift outside of its defined operational parameters, you can send somebody out or, or go make some adjustments to bring it back in, in track. So now you're basically operating um, at the commission level, commissioning level. So what was the original design intent for this piece of equipment? And are you keeping it operating at that level? The last one is reliability-centered maintenance, or RCM. And this is really the kind of pinnacle of maintenance strategies. But RCM is really labor-intensive and requires specialized per personnel like reliability engineers and process engineers. This strategy is nearly not for every organization or every facility, but it's most suitable for really mission-critical systems like nuclear power plants, hydroelectric dams, pharmaceutical manufacturing, hospitals. You know, the focus is on analyzing any failure in a mission-critical component and determining how to eliminate or minimize the probability of it ever failing again. So, you know, not everybody, um, there's a lot of people that think they want to get to RCM, but they really don't. It's, uh, for a standard office building, it's overkill. You know, you're not really going to, it's a point of diminishing return in terms of what benefit do you get out of it. Uh, but for certain operations or, you know, critical manufacturing where it's literally hundreds of thousands of dollars a minute for downtime, um, you know, you, you definitely want to make sure that, 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 that assembly line or that manufacturing process does not halt, you know, mid-process um, and that it keeps running. So though, that's where you apply the RCM strategies and there's a payback for that. You can actually calculate it. And it, I mean, on that, on that note though, it does go back into your previous notes of, or points where it's got to align with the overall business objectives. And so it's not going right. to be uniform across the board. It is what does my, the overall business need? What, yeah, what's the demand? Um, if you're, if you're familiar with ISO, international standards, you know, we have, um, there's now a standard for facility management, ISO 41000, um, just like there is for asset management. But almost all ISO standards, when you look at the language and you learn the language of how to read these standards, 
they refer to the demand organization. The demand organization is typically the corporation or the executive branch, if you will. Um, and, and that's where it defines what is the needs of the business? What, is the, what strategies are we gonna follow? And any of the subordinate organizations really must align with those strategies and, um, and objectives and goals. So how do you do that? Um, so, you know, again, if, if you're a pharmaceutical manufacturing and um, there's a lot of regulation around that, by the way. So they don't want to get uh, shut down by the FDA for not having all of their reporting. So there's a lot of reporting that goes along. So if there's ever any kind of a problem, uh, not only have you documented, but you've documented that you took those temperature checks every 15 minutes and you better be able to show them. Um, I mean, when they ask, you better be able to show them that minute, not I'll get back to you in a week kind of thing. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things that you have to set up in your systems and your processes to make sure not only you're collecting the data, but how do I get it back out if I need it in a, in a moment's notice? Um, so those are all the things that will drive some of those, those maintenance and operational strategies. But today, uh, most organizations are in preventive maintenance, and some of them are in the predictive maintenance modes. Even fewer are in condition-based maintenance, and really just the the most mission critical are really in reliability center maintenance. Um, uh, I would say there's few organizations that truly practice RCM as it's defined. Um, I've got a book around here someplace on maintenance best practices. It's about 700 pages and it's truly the Bible on uh, maintenance and operations. Uh, the guy that wrote it actually works for Jacobs Engineering, has for, for decades, uh, but he's he is one of the people that originated reliability-centered maintenance. So if you want to go to the source, he's still around. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That That's great there because I, <laughs> if you're saying that's the Bible of, uh, of maintenance, then that, that's, I, I think, a good future guest here. Well, Dean, certainly appreciate you coming on. And I, I do have one final question for you. Uh, I ask everybody, uh, who or what has had the biggest impact on you and your career? Uh, good question. You know, I've uh, I was fortunate that I kind of grew up in in a, a large corporation that we still had a lot of mentoring that went on. I, I was fortunate to have some some very very bright people that were mentors of mine that you know helped me out when we were talking about managing people. For example, you don't you don't learn that just on your own. That that should not be a trial and error because that affects people. Um, I had some good people that mentored me through that. And I still think back on some of those things that I learned today, you know, uh, you know that so-and-so taught me that 30 years ago or whatever. Um, right. You know, I, I was in management for 40 years and, uh, you know, 40 plus years. And I, I learned a lot along the way. And now, you know, I'm more in that uh, mode of being able to... Um, mentor others you know uh, I, I like sharing what I know and what I've learned and what's worked over time and you know where there are, where are there pitfalls that you might avoid um, so anybody that's interested in learning you know I'm, I'm more than happy to you know take my time to share what I know and say maybe you can use this maybe you can't you know times change <laughs> yeah well I, I appreciate you making the time to come on and do just that and and 
really dive into a lot of depth on uh, just different softwares available out there, the implementation process and uh, best practices to go along with it. And I know a lot of listeners out there are going to have a, a lot, find a lot of value in this conversation. So I really do appreciate you coming on. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of tools. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, good opportunities out there. Um, so, you know, but again, if you don't set it up right, it's not going to deliver, you know, it's not going to work as it did in the demo. <laughs> That's um, the truth. <laughs> and so, you know, what you want to say is, okay, if I want it to do what it did in the demo, what do I got to do first, you know, uh, to set it up and, and to get there? And, um, uh, and again, a lot, not a lot of people know about that kind of thing. And, and also, it's, it's a set of skills that don't necessarily exist within an organization. So maybe the first question is, is do we have anybody that knows how to build this project and lead it? And, um, you know, it's one thing to have executive sponsorship, but that executive sponsor isn't going to lead the project and make it successful. Somebody has to take it, you know, from its infancy uh, and build a plan. Even if the leadership changes, do you have a plan that somebody can pick up and follow through uh, to a successful conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, this has all been extremely valuable and these are huge projects that are ongoing and a big decision for any organization to make as you're looking to adopt new tools. And like I said, the insight here and content here has been phenomenal. I certainly appreciate you coming on and uh, providing your expertise here, Dean. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Facilities Management Podcast. Make sure to subscribe for future episodes and follow us on LinkedIn for more facilities management content.